Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Each week I'll be chatting to someone that inspires me by cooking or producing delicious things on our doorsteps. We'll also hear from our expert forager Imogen Davis on what delights you can find right now and I'll be sharing some of my favourite recipes which I hope will inspire you. Coming up in this episode, I'll talk through my recipe for lamb chops with ground ivy chimichurri and crushed Jersey Royals. And Imogen tells us all about mallow. But first, I chat to Johnny Elson. My guest today has a diploma in wine and works at the five-star hotel Cowarth Park that boasts the Michelin-starred restaurant Cowarth Park. In his career, he's worked as head of fine wines, head sommelier, head of wines. You get the gist, he knows a thing or two about wine. Welcome, Johnny Elson. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, Kat. No, really pleased to be with you and talk to you all about English fucking wine. So, um, what have you not to at this crazy time? And are you at the restaurant now? Uh, so, I'm in the hotel at the moment, working on what is going to come out of lockdown at the end of it, whenever that might be. Mm-hmm. But really, sort of spending a lot more time at home. Um, hospitality means that you're rarely at home. You don't have much time to do what you'd normally like to do. So, lots of cooking, as I know you've seen. Yeah, I've seen on Instagram, you've been cooking up an absolute storm. <laughs> yeah, it's actually time to just sit back and plan and enjoy things a bit more. And when you go to the shop, you can actually plan a week's worth of shopping and you can slow cook things for a day if you want to because there's no race, there's no rush. Um, so in some ways, it's been nice to be out of the rat race a little bit. Um, yeah. But itching now to get back and get back to the hotel and get it up and running again because it's, it's a little bit soulless being here without guests and people and our teams, really. Yeah, of course. So, Johnny, you know a lot about English wine. You've worked at Majestic. You've been at Head Sommelier at Coweth Park, um, Head of Wines. And now you're the Director of Restaurants. What do you love about English wine? I'm very patriotic to start with. So, I just love anything that we're produced in this country. Um, something about bubbles. It's, it's so celebratory. It's so, you know, wonderful to have, whether it's champagne, carver, prosecco, whatever it is. But the fact that we've got just such an amazing... Mm-hmm. product on our doorstep um, and it produces so much for, for the economy and gives us such a talking point in, in, the, in the restaurants and the hotel um, is, is really wonderful. And do you think, is England new to producing wine? Because um, I feel like, you know, recently the conversation's been booming about English wine, but I don't know whether we are, you know, actually maybe we've been doing it for centuries. We've been doing it for centuries. I mean, if you go back to the Doomsday Book in what was it, 1066, there's talk of 40 vineyards to the west of London, which is a ridiculous amount at, considering you know the time and the scale and the population that was there. But sort of after that, it, it pretty much disappeared because we used to get most of our wine from places like France, places like Italy, you know, through the trade routes, and so most of that sort of really disappeared until probably the mid 20th century. And that's when viticulture and people looking into different grape varieties in the vineyards and the soil that were really using, they really started to understand what worked where and in which part of the world, in which country, which type of soils they were looking for. And that really allowed the UK, which didn't have a history per se before that, to, to look at what it is that they could plant and grow well and what we could make into a top quality product. So it was really sort of, you know, 1960s, 1970s that it started to come back into um, sort of the, the nation's conscience. Um, but even then, it sort of took, it took another 20 years or so, of sort of a lot of trial and error. And a lot of the things that were planted at the time, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, 
they don't really exist now. Mm. And a lot of those vineyards have now been scrapped and they've now been planted with vines that things like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, the the classic grape varieties that will go into mainly the the sparkling wines that we're so famous for. Yeah, so our soil and our climate does well on certain grapes then? Yeah, so a lot of people liken Southern England to Champagne, which I sort of, I I get and I don't get. Latitudinally, we're very similar. Um, And there's a lot of talk about, you know, chalk and there's chalk in Champagne, there's chalk in Southern England, that's why it's so similar. But really, you know, you go from one vineyard plot to the next, there might be chalk, there might be slate, there might be limestone. What it is, is that we're very well suited, that we have Mm -hmm. just about the right climate. We have good draining soil, whatever it's made from. So each vineyard you go to, they'll talk about, we've got a base of our vineyard on this type of soil, and they will think it's the best for them. But what it means is that we have grapes that, that are really suited to that sort of that boundary, that cooler climate of growing. So mm-hmm. as I said, you're going to get in the classic champagne grape varieties, you're going to get lighter white wine grape varieties such as like some Bacchus or Ortega. You're not going to suddenly get big plush Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlots, because we're not warm enough. Those type of grapes, they need a lot of sunshine, they need a lot of warmth. That's why they're in Chile, Argentina, southern France, Italy, you know, that are perfect holiday destinations. Yes. So we produce lots of great English sparkling wine. So um, vineyards include, you know, Nye Timber, Chapel Down, and those kind of more well-known ones. Are there any other ones that you think really should be up there on the list? Nye Timber's really up there in terms of sort of the name that people have as like the trailblazer for, for English sparkling wine. And when I get asked this question, you're always going to offend someone because you're not going to mention them. <laughs> um, and they will feel that they were one of the first pioneers of English white wine in a specific area. You know, there's Camel Valley down in the southwest, and you mentioned Chapel Down. Um, there's there's a couple that I would probably pick out um, that are just maybe a little bit different from the norm um, that we've done quite a lot of work with here at Cowarth Park. Yeah. Um, one would be Digby. So they're based down in Arundel in, in Sussex, but they only started up in 2009. And so they've been around a relatively short period of time if you compare to Night Timber in 1988. And they, they went down a different model of they don't actually own any vineyards. They're almost what the French would call sort of a negotiant business. So they buy their grapes from grape growers and they blend their own wine. And what it means is that actually they had the idea and within two to three years, they had their first product. Okay. Whereas Night Timber started in 88, the first real vintage they released was eight years later. Yeah. And so they were able to start up a business from nothing in a very short space of time. And they've done great work in terms of sort of getting the name out there into markets such as Japan, China, the US, um, because they were much more focused on the marketing and the sort of getting their name out there as opposed to being worried so much about what's in the vineyard on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I can imagine. You had lots of pressure. Your grapes have got to kind of produce. And I guess if you were working for Digby, it'd be quite nice not having that worry and you're just focusing on, you know, buying the grapes, the blending, and then, yeah, getting the word out there. Absolutely. And you, you hit the nail on the head that, you know, all of that worry is taken away from you because at the end of the day, if you, if you don't think the, the quality of the product's good enough, you don't buy it um, yeah. or you won't pay nearly as much for it. So you have a much more flexible business model. And that's one of the big sort of barriers that are put in place when you're looking at English sparkling wine and how it can develop to sort of long term in terms of our production is the cost of land in southern England. OK, nowhere near the price of a hectare in Champagne, for instance, but it's not cheap land. Uh, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of finances involved in order to make something so successful. 
Yeah, and I met Night Timber quite a few years ago, and I remember the ambassador saying something about the vines having much more space in the UK, and therefore it's more expensive to produce wine over here. Does that ring any bells with you? It's probably due to the fact that we don't get nearly as much sunshine as a lot of other places. Yeah. So even if you, I keep going back to Champagne, but it's the easiest comparison. They do have longer, sunnier days than we do. They have that much more continental climate. And therefore, their grapes don't need as much sun all of the time. Yeah. Whereas here, you need to make sure that there's that exposure to the, to the sun. And it sounds all sort of quite boring and scientific. But at the end of the day, the more they're spaced out, the more sunshine they have, the more access to the nutrients they have. And therefore, you're able to keep your production up. But it means that, yeah, indeed, it's not nearly as financially profitable as if you can cram them into a smaller space. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have Digby. Digby is, is an English sparkling wine you like. Yeah, and the other the other one it's, it's it's a bit of a pet project I think in some ways, but it's just down the road from us here. Is there is actually a vineyard in Windsor Great Park? Okay. So the Queen offered part of her land to Tony Lathwaite, owns Direct Wines Lathwaite. So I'm sure most people have heard of them, mm. and gave him the option to to part, plant a few hectares of vines in, in Windsor Great Park. So it's a really small production. If you go there, there's not really a huge amount to see. There's not some big winery or anything like that. It's not a big visitor centre, but there is this small plot and they produce about 3,000 bottles a year, which we, we have access to a small proportion of. And again, I thought about sort of being patriotic and loyal. It's just so great to have something literally on our doorstep that we're able to showcase to our guests. Brilliant. And that's a sparkling wine, not um, a sparkling, sparkling wine. Sparkling wine, yeah. Lovely. Um, and I briefly want to just talk about the process for English sparkling, because it's a pretty similar or identical process to how they make champagne, isn't it? It's completely the same. Um, it's what they call the traditional method. It's where you harvest and you, you press the grapes and you end up with a, with a grape juice, which is then fermented and you create a base wine. So it's, it's a light, normally white wine very acidic you wouldn't want to drink it it's very sour um, but this then has to go through a, a second process and that's called secondary fermentation which is where you put the liquid back into the bottle you will eventually serve it in whether it's at home whether it's in the restaurant hotel wherever you happen to be and you add yeast and you add sugar to that and you put a crown cap very similar to what you would put on top of a, a beer bottle and you leave it uh, and that secondary fermentation takes place over a number of months and what you end up with is what's called the lees, which is basically dead yeast cells that then stay in the bottle. Now, it might not sound particularly you know, attractive to drink, and certainly you wouldn't want to drink the, the end liquid that currently sits in there, but the longer you leave the wine there, or the sparkling wine, which it now is because one of the byproducts of fermentation is carbon dioxide, which is what gives it its bubbles, the longer you leave on those lees, you develop much more tertiary characteristics. So it's not so much now about the fruitiness per se that's coming from uh, the grapes. And that's the same with, with champagne, a lot of other sparkling wines. This is much more about those biscuity, toasty, brioche, nutty notes, which aren't compounds or aromas and flavors that would normally develop out a grape. They actually come from the yeast itself. And so you will then leave it on its lees and um, sometimes it might be 18 months to two years. Some people leave it a lot longer. So you mentioned Night Timber. Night Timber's latest release is 2013, which will mean that they will have left their latest vintage sparkling wine on its leaves for around about six years. And that's really to sort of allow those, those flavours to develop. Mm. 
Mm. Now, I said it's not a particularly attractive liquid to drink and you wouldn't want to drink it, but what you end up with is a bottle with these, the leaves, the dead yeast cells inside, and it goes through a process called riddling, which is where you get all that yeast to the neck of the bottle, and then it's then dipped into a freezing uh, salt brine solution, which basically freezes the neck of the bottle. And when that crown cap is taken off, because of all of the pressure built up inside, because of all that carbon dioxide, that actually pops out. And what you're then left with is a, is a perfectly clear liquid. The last thing you do is you, this is the French word is dosage, um, is you're adding basically a champagne or sparkling wine sugar syrup back into the bottle. And what that allows the winemaker to do is to really sort of make that final adjustment. It's like a chef in a kitchen. You taste the food just before it's going out and you might add that touch of seasoning whether it's salt, whether it's pepper, whatever you feel, it, yeah. squeeze a lemon juice. It's their last chance to, to really put their final stamp on it. But also, it allows them to keep the consistency of their, their product. At the end of the day, it's an organic product. It's something that's living, it's growing, it's developing. It will continue to change um, over time. But what you want to have is consistency because you want to know when you go and you pick up your bottle of night timber, as an example... You choose it in your favourite restaurant for your anniversary, but then you feel like picking one off the, the shelves and Waitrose yeah. six months later. You want to take it home and you want it to taste the same. And so this is their way of keeping that consistency sort of to their, what they would call their house style, what what Night Timber is to someone or what Digby is to someone or Chapel Down, you know, Blanc de Blanc is to, to someone. They, they need to keep that consistency. Yeah, that makes sense. And then um, I feel like there's lots of different kind of categories of wine that's gaining a bit more traction these days. So you've got, um, or, you know, organic, biodynamic, natural wines. Um, is that something that we do over here? Um, what, what do you think about these types of wines? Organic and biodynamic are words that, I, that are banded around quite a lot. And, but actually, if you get to the heart of what they are, there's a lot of people out there, I think, would maybe not take them so seriously. This is about understanding the techniques and the stages that you have to go through in order to make a biodynamic or an organic wine. And the easiest way to really describe this is just to give you the definition of what they are. I mean, at the end of the day, organic wine is a wine that's made from organically grown grapes. So yes, there is no intervention in the vineyard. However, winemaking, fermenting grape juice to make wine is an interventionist process in its own right. So you have to do something to it. You can't just leave it to happen naturally. So yes, you have a lot of organic wines out there in the world. There's very, very few actually in this country. There's about three or four only in this country. Um, but you're always going to have to do something to it. So it's not technically organic like you're going to pick your organic apple off a tree. It's going to up in the supermarket. You have to have done something to that apple. If you get sort of the comparison, you have to do something to the grapes and therefore it's not technically organic, um, although it will have been grown better in the vineyard. Biodynamics more of a strange one. It's a viticulture, it's a way of growing grapes that was based on the work of a guy called Rudolf Steiner. Mm. And it's basically a range of ecological principles and an astrological calendar. So yes, it's about using natural uh, manures and natural fertilizers and really sort of not going into your vineyard and using lots of herbicides and pesticides, which is a great thing. But it's also revolving around this astrological calendar, which is basically to do with the plants and the trees and the moon and there's certain days you can plant certain days you can pick on based on this lunar cycle okay. um, which there are lots of winemakers out there that put their stake in the ground and say this is where we are this is what we're doing and how wonderful it is i personally cannot see on the on the astrological side how the moon is having a huge effect 
on how good their grapes are coming out and how good their wine is. But a lot of people seem to like it. It's very much in vogue at the moment, very similar to natural wines you mentioned as well. Um, and therefore, we will always, you know, we will always have some on our list and it's important to know about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm a bit more a skeptic myself and, and have been for a number of years. <laughs> well, you did do a neuroscience degree, so the astrology side is pro- probably not for you. Yeah, it's like people say <laughs> I have mood swings because it's the tidal waves in your brain. I mean, I, I, I've never got it, so. <laughs> so then natural wines then? Natural wines are talking about Vogue, very much in Vogue, and there's a big movement about them. And these really are at sort of that, that end of that spectrum of what we can do with nature and wine. So the grapes 100% will be grown organically, but it's not just about them growing organically. It's about when you then come to the fermentation process, you're basically leaving nature to take over. Okay. Um, there is always a small amount of yeast that occurs on the outside of grapes. And so if you were to leave it and you don't do anything to it, you will end up with this with this natural wine. It will naturally ferment. But what you're left with is you're left with a lot of inconsistency with wines in the product. Mm-hmm. You're left with wines that from one day or one week to the next are changing and will continually change. Yeah. And that's mainly because then the winemakers, once they've made their wine, they won't do what's called fining or filtering. So normally a wine would go through some sort of final filter basically to remove the impurities and because of what they believe to be the best for their wines they don't want to remove any of the goodness out of them they don't do anything like that so quite often they have a slightly strange appearance quite often they can be cloudy they do have sediment and although it can be a great product if done very very well there's only a small number of of producers that that do this well Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is sort of backyard sort of chemistry almost of what can you come up with 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 your vineyard so okay sounds a bit like more of a mixed bag with that one yeah because <laughs> they can't control what's going on really <laughs> amazing um have you got any particular favorite wines that are produced over here um i mean i've i've mentioned quite a, a lot of english sparkling wines and I'm, I'm a big fan of fan of all of them if we take the word sparkling out there's very few wines still wines that are I think they're done exceptionally well, mm-hmm. and mainly because I believe that we're trying to use the wrong grape varieties. Okay. As I said earlier, you're never going to grow big, rich, heavy red wines. Even the lighter red wines can be quite difficult, and again, you end up with a lot of inconsistency because one year it might produce a great wine, but you our climate is so temperamental, you can't guarantee a great wine every year. One wine, and it's, it's quite a cool story, is a company called London Crew. So it's a winery that's based in southwest London, based in Fulham. Mm. And a little bit like Digby, they, they don't own any vineyards. They purely just set up a winery in London and they said, look, we're going to get the grapes to us. They get to us within 24 hours and they're refrigerated. They'll be good and we can make wine. And they actually make wines from all over Europe. They've made Albarinos from Spain. They've made Barbaros from Italy because they can get them there in 24 hours. But we're not here to talk about you know, what, what the Europeans can do. But they, every year they produce an amazing Bacchus. Okay. And Bacchus was the, the Roman god of wine. And it's one of the great varieties that's almost sort of feels indigenous to us here in the UK. And actually does grow really, really well. Um, and they go out every year and it might be from Sussex, might from Kent. And again, they buy their grapes, very similar to, to Digby. And they produce a brilliant, light, crisp, well-rounded at the same time, almost sort of Sauvignon Blanc-esque type. And just one of those wines, you know, an aperitif you can crack open and really enjoy a glass, especially when the sun's shining. Amazing. Yes, perfect coming to summer. Yeah. And again, for, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is still the most popular wine that we have or that we sell in this country. But I think people are always looking for an alternative to it. 
there's only so much kiwi mm-hmm. serving mm-hmm. a blanc that you can drink in any one any one given year so <laughs> got to mix it up yeah i think a really good alternative okay lovely thank you um then i want to talk about wine and food as well because i know you do some sort of outstanding wine dinners at Coworth Park, where your executive chef, Adam, is creating the food and you're pairing the wines. And, um, of course, you, you use all sorts of, of wines for this, you know, not just English. But, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about English wines and how they pair with food and how you've kind of done that in the past. Yeah, so we, as you said, we, we do this range of wine dinners. And this is all about you know, showing great producers. And this is from people from all over the world. But we've been very lucky to do some with some English producers, um, not just on wines, we've also done them with um, people like Chase Distillery. We did a range of cocktails with them. Again, sort of showcasing another great British produce that we can make here in the UK. Um, and we love doing them just because it almost creates like a little bit of a secret supper club. And it gives us a chance to get out of the norm, to get out of the, mm. the day-to-day service within the restaurant, you know, serving not the same food, but we can really go and create something different, something exciting, something that people see once and they may well never see again. And it's trying to utilise, you know, Adam's skill, um, he's an incredible chef, with, with coming up with, with brilliant ideas. And so every menu that we create for these is completely bespoke and really sort of gets us to think outside the box. You know, sometimes you can play a little bit too safe with food and wine pairings and things become quite similar. So really just sort of thinking what can we showcase that's something different? What can we try and not only show our guests, but also show our teams as well, because we want to keep them engaged. Um, and I was actually having a chat with one of my friends the other day about food and wine pairing and, and what it's all about. And it's really about balance. So if you look at a classic sparkling wine, you know, it's dry, it's crisp, it's got really high acidity, and you need to balance that out. And so easy thing would be to say, you know, with the dry, crisp and high acidity, you need something oily, fatty, salty, Caviar, that, I mean, champagne and caviar, hardly anything works better. But that's, that's something quite safe. It's quite an easy one. So what you tip it on its head, and you know, I think one of the best pairings out there is an English sparkling wine and fish and chips. Mm. Again, it's oily, it's fatty, it's salty. Having that really refreshing sparkling wine to go with it, there's no better match. But then you can start to expand things because especially as the English sparkling wine scene becomes bigger and we have much more heritage you know in terms of the produce that we have and also things that start to age much more and you can start to treat sparkling wine not so much as sort of something that's young and fresh and straight off the shelf but something with a bit of age yeah so probably the the highlights that i had was when we did a we did a wine dinner with digby and they brought out in their vintage rosé 2009 so it was nearly a decade old but we really thought about it as a fine wine like a really nice pinot noir um and we actually paired it with a veal chop with truffle now you're thinking red meat and truffle and you know but it, it blew everyone's minds they they love it they still rave on about it when we when we speak to them um because we really were able to push those boundaries in, in terms of what we can deliver yeah i feel like people recently have been open to kind of rosés and sparkling rosés um to pair with meat um especially if they have like a high pinot noir content i think people are much more open to that these days yeah and i think it's important especially when you're curating something like a wine dinner you can't just stick to the really sort of safe, as I said, fish, caviar, seafood, maybe some a light sort of vegetable dish. Yeah. But, you know, you really need to try and give some balance to a menu, which I think is one of those things we're always really conscious of. And it's really nice to experiment and to also, you know, get everyone's feedback and give them something they've they've never never tried before. You know, who as you say, who would have thought that you could sit there and drink a sparkling rose and you would you would put it with veal and truffle? 
Now, this is not to say, you know, maybe if, maybe a fillet steak and braised onions is probably going a little bit too far. Um, so I think there's a, there's a boundary with where you can go with it, but mm. I think it's great in terms of pushing out that profile of English sparkling wine. You need to show it's much more of an all-round product that you can drink throughout the meal rather than just always just being viewed as that start to a meal. And then what do you move on to that's probably going to end up being from another country? Yeah. So that, that London crew, you said that's crisp, but well-rounded, a good aperitif. Can you give another suggestion of like a pairing that would, would go quite well with that? Yeah, I mean, that sort of wine, because it's on the really light side, you don't want to overpower it too much. It's not going to have the big round flavours of sparkling wines. I talked about those sort of biscuity, brioche, toasty notes. So this is something very light and refined. So you'd be looking at, again, something we're great of in this country, like well, olive white tomatoes. You know, think of all those different textures, the sweetness of them. You could do something really beautiful with a bit of avocado and, you know, creating a, a beautiful tomato consomme. Mm. Um, just to really, just to marry it together. And you don't want one overpowering the other. And I think that's the mm. other key to being a wine pairing, that you don't want anything to outshine or outpower or outbalance. They've got to sit there like sort of they're holding hands. So I wouldn't go much bigger with that type of wine. Brilliant. And if you if someone wants to learn more about English wine or um, explore some different options, where would you kind of send them or recommend uh, they try? I think understanding a, a base knowledge about wine in general, I think, is a, is a great starting point. The WSET, Wine Spirit Education Trust, based uh, up by London Bridge, they run a fantastic range of courses. And there are a lot of local wine schools as well um, in lots of people's different areas. I think understanding that that little bit about what you are drinking, whether it's from England or elsewhere, I think is a great piece of knowledge to have. And then really sort of go out, as I say, hunting, hunting for the hunting for the vineyards, going and seeing a vineyard makes such a difference to understanding what goes into your glass and how much work has gone into it. So yeah, trying to find your local producer would be my my best advice. And then Johnny, a question that I ask all my guests is what is your favourite British ingredient right now? As every episode, I'm going to create a recipe based on what you say. I mean, I've mentioned things like veal and you can probably tell I'm a bit of a carnivore. I love my meat. But this time of year, spring lamb is incredible. Mm. And again, another great British produce. There's no need to fly it halfway across the world from New Zealand. Um, so yeah, give it a shot with something with lamb. Okay, brilliant. I'll do that. Thank you. Johnny, it's been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you for this brilliant introduction to English wine and I can't wait to learn more. Hey, you're very welcome, Kat. It's been, it's been great to speak to you and hopefully catch up soon. If you want to learn more about the wines and vineyards that Johnny mentioned, then I've linked the pages in the notes below this episode so you can check them out there. So Johnny said he's loving spring lamb at the moment. When we say spring lamb, the British lamb we're eating at the moment is mostly hogget, uh, which is the lambs from last year. They're about a year old and it's their second spring or summer. Uh, hogget is really the best of both worlds. It's full of flavour but really tender. Today I'm making my lamb chops with ground ivy chimichurri and crushed Jersey Royals, which are at their best right now as well. This recipe serves two people. It's really quick, you just cook uh, 300 grams of Jersey Royal potatoes for 10 to 15 minutes until tender and leave to one side. Then you make your sauce. This is a take on like the traditional South American chimichurri, but it's made with ground ivy, which is a foraged ingredient. Um, you can learn more about it in the link to this recipe. If you don't have any ground ivy though, you can just use mint and sage as it's got a really nice herbal flavor. To make your sauce, you need two tablespoons of cider vinegar, six of extra virgin olive oil, a handful of ground ivy, finely chopped, a little sliced green chilli, a finely sliced shallot, 
and one clove of minced garlic. Mix it all together and leave to one side. Then grill some lovely lamb chops for about three minutes on each side so they're nice and pink. Put them on a plate to rest and throw the potatoes in the same pan with a knob of butter and whack it up to full heat and get those potatoes really crispy, sort of crush them as well. Blanch 50 grams of peas for one minute and peel a courgette into ribbons. To serve, lay your crushed fried potatoes on a platter, scatter over your peas and courgette ribbons and top with the lovely lamb chops and then drizzle over the chimichurri sauce. You can visit doorstepkitchen.com forward slash recipes forward slash lamb for this recipe and I've also linked the exact page in the notes under this episode. Now we'll be hearing from our expert forager Imogen Davis from London Restaurant Native. She joins us every week. Hello everybody. I feel like there's been a bumper crop of the beautiful pinky purple mallow this year. From verges and meadows to the heaths and roadsides, they seem to be absolutely everywhere. And the great thing about that is that it's super easy to identify, even by Florence, my four-year-old niece, who has the best time excitedly squealing marshmallow every couple of seconds while we're out on our walks. And she's not wrong. The leaves, flowers and roots have high levels of mucilage and they were traditionally used to make sticky, sappy sweets before the French developed a recipe that incorporated beaten egg whites, which gives them their characteristic fluffy, chewy texture. The whole plant is actually edible. With the young leaves, they're perfect for boiling or steaming with their refreshing taste and it doesn't have that common forage bitter characteristic. It's great for thickening soups and sauces. And one of my favourite dishes of recent times at Native was our Cornish hake with wild mallow and courgette from Sutton Community Farm. I've put a picture on our Instagram recently, so check it out and see if you want to give something similar a try at home. When identifying common mallow, you'll probably first notice the pinky purpley flowers that have five symmetrical petals radiating from one central point and often with a stripe down the middle. The leaves are kind of fan-shaped and they, to me they remind me of kind of geraniums but again they're not poisonous so you're all good when you're identifying. If you scrape this hairy stem of a mallow leaf you can feel the texture of the mucilage. Mash it and rub it through your fingers and you should be able to feel like a moisture, a slight sliminess which should give you the clue that you've got the right family of plant. The seeds of the mallow yields disc-shaped seeds or nutlets that are edible and you can snack on them like cheeses. So although they don't really taste like cheese, they look like those round wheels of cheese and they taste quite nutty. You'll be really pleased to know that there are not any poisonous lookalikes, so it's a great plant to get out and forage, but just remember to always be cautious when identifying and do cross-reference. I've seen some great recipes online for mallow, including dolmas and the obvious marshmallow, which I'm planning on giving a try this week. So please do get in touch with any recipes you give a try. Enjoy! Thanks, Imogen. I had no idea that's where marshmallows came from originally. I'm definitely going to try and find some and create a foraged marshmallow. That's all for this episode of The Doorstep Kitchen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please do rate, review and subscribe as it really makes a difference. Next week, I speak to British chef James Donnelly about local alternatives to well-known imports. Stay tuned for another seasonal recipe and Imogen will be back to talk about wild strawberries, my absolute favourite. See you next time.